Welcome back, everybody, to the Movement Podcast. This episode is a part of a three-part series that Pastor Raymond Woodward taught on holiness at the Pentecostals of Bossier City. If you're interested in watching the video that I got this audio from, you can go to YouTube, type in the Pentecostals of Bossier City, Holiness Raymond Woodward. I'm really excited about this series. He teaches about holiness in a really exciting, easy-to-understand way. So here we go. This is Pastor Raymond Woodward teaching about holiness here on the Movement Podcast. I'm thankful for the principles of God's Word. Some people, they get it when God says, don't. Um... That's a good thing, because a lot of people ignore when God says don't. But uh, we also get it when God says uh, he doesn't have to rage at us or beat us over the head. We get it when God says, I like this, and I don't like that. And when we hear God say in his word, I like this, we want to do as much of that as possible. That's just our heart. And when we hear God say, I don't like this, or that offends me, or that grieves me, we stay away from that. Now, that's part of what we're talking about tonight as we talk about the issue of holiness. Because if you have the Holy Ghost inside of you, you want to please that holy God who has saved you. And that's a a lifelong goal. Now, you're, you're kind of jumping in about a third of the way through what we're talking about if you just came tonight. So let me catch you up real quick. Last night we talked about how we get saved, how we live saved, and how God finally takes us into his eternal kingdom. We said, I was saved when I experienced the new birth. That puts me into the kingdom of God, and when I, I experience that, I'm just as saved at that moment as anybody else in this building. If you've only been in the church for two weeks, I'm not talking about being in the building, I'm talking about being in God's church through the new birth experience, you're saved. But if you think God is going to save you and then just kind of dump you, not true at all. God's going to grow you because he wants you to grow up in the faith. There are so many scriptures in your Bible about growing in our relationship with God. And so it's God's will that we get saved. It's God's will that we develop. The theologians say we get justified and then we get sanctified. Or in other words, we're made holy. We're made like Jesus. And someday we experience the rapture and we're forever more done with growing and we're forever more done with sin and we're forever more done with anything of this world and we end up in God's eternal kingdom. So the question for us is, where are you? Um... How many of you, you've experienced a new birth and you're born again, you're in the kingdom of God? How many of you, you've got that done? So that means you're not at that stage anymore. Some people, they say, well, I got saved and now I don't really want to do anything else. I've checked that off my list and so I'm just going to kind of sit here. Well, you've got it backwards and you've got it wrong. Because uh, people think today, how many have ever heard the statement, well, Jesus loves me just the way I am. Anybody ever heard that? Well, yeah, Um, but he loves you way too much to leave you like that because you're miserable when you come in from the world and Jesus needs to do a little bit of renovation. And so he puts you in a church 
There's a little poem I quote to the church at home sometimes. It says, uh, to live above with saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. And so God puts you in a church and he puts all of us around you so we can knock the rough edges off you. And God puts grace builders in your life. When I get to heaven, I don't have many questions for Jesus. I just have one question. Why didn't you use any normal people to knock the rough edges off me? Why, why was it always weirdos and crazy people? I, I just want to ask him that. And God puts people in our lives and God puts circumstances in our lives. And God puts commandments in our lives. And God puts pastors in our lives. And it's to train us and teach us to grow in God. And you have to decide, not after you hear what the Bible says. You have to decide right up front, am I going to constantly push back against the word of God? Or am I going to have an open heart to receive the word of God? Am I always going to have an argument why I shouldn't have to do that? Or am I going to just develop an attitude that says, God, if it's in your word, I don't care what culture does. I don't care what others do. I don't care what family and friends and coworkers and people from other religious groups do. I really don't care about all that. All I care about is your word, and your word settles it for me. You have to decide that for yourself. Now, you're part of a church, and we've got some other wonderful pastors here, some friends, and, and we're so thankful you're here. Uh, and you're part of a church that believes that God changes us from the inside out. So we're going to talk about both, inside and outside. Uh, but, but we're going to spend a little bit of time on what we call external holiness. And here's why. It's not because it's more important. Uh, the, the most important thing for you to have is holiness on the inside. That's the most important thing for you to have. No question there. Nobody's arguing that. But, but here's the thing. So many people are saying, well, I've got internal holiness, but their external life is no different than the world. Not at all. And, and so the way they present themselves, there's no difference. And here's Jesus saying to us, let your light so shine before men. And here's the Bible telling us that we're a peculiar people and we're a royal priesthood and we're a, a holy people unto God. And, and, and so there's a little bit of a discrepancy there. And you have to make up your mind as an individual. So with that all in mind, we're going to jump into the word of God and we're going to spend a while. Uh, the guys are going to put a number on the screen. And here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to teach for a while, um, no more than six, eight hours. And then uh, at the end, uh, if you're still awake and uh, they, they don't nudge you to get you out of the building, uh, at the end, if you've got any questions about something specific, uh, we'll take a few questions at the end after we dismiss. We'll let everybody be dismissed. And if you've got some questions, you can stay and we'll just kind of have a discussion. We'll leave the microphone on and and whatever. Uh, so I, the guys have a, a number and you can text any question to that number that you want and uh, it'll be on the screen. You can text that anytime and we'll try to deal with as many questions as we can get to. If we don't get to them tonight, we can deal with them tomorrow night. If it's a dumb question, we'll deal with it Wednesday after I'm out of town. Brother Dean will handle it. <laughs> Let's go to the Word of God. That will uh, help us a lot. Get your Bible ready and just before we turn open to the Scripture, I'd like you to pray with me and I'd ask you to pray what we prayed last night. Would you ask Jesus 
to come into this place and then would you give Jesus permission to speak his word to you? You may already believe everything I say, but there's a spirit of revelation about this holiness issue that wants to get a hold of the church because we're in a very unholy era and we're in a very unholy, sensual, sex-crazed culture and, and God wants to raise up a holy people in the last days. It doesn't do one bit of good if the church is the same as the world because they can just do it bigger, better, with more money and cash and flash and panache and they can do all their stuff. But what really helps people is when the church is something so totally different from the world that when people come into the church, it changes their life from the inside out and makes them forever different. That's what we need. That's what we want to be. So with that in mind, would you lift up your hands one more time and would you raise your voice with those hands and would you give Jesus permission to talk to you? I'm not talking about him talking to anybody else. I'm talking about him talking to you. If you believe this for 50 years, I still want you to give Jesus permission to talk to you. Lord God, tonight we thank you for this great attendance that's here on a Monday night. I thank you for the churches and pastors that are represented here and the precious saints of God. And Jesus, it doesn't do one bit of good for us to go through a little lecture, but let a spirit of revelation come in this room tonight. Let a spirit of revelation get a hold of us so that we know that we know that we know that it's settled in our hearts by your word. Jesus, put a guard over my mouth. I don't want to say anything that would be offensive or anything that would be an issue. I want to say what your word says. And God, I pray your anointing would rest here. Would you thank the Lord for that? I believe he heard that prayer. Amen. And let's go to uh, the word of God, if you would. And I want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you would, with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul is writing to one of his young protégés, a young guy named Timothy, and he's training him in ministry. And, and here's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Don't adorn yourself that way. But which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And we'll come back to this at the very end tonight. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. If you go back in the opening chapters of your Bible, here's what you're going to see. God institutes two principles for his creation to protect us. Two principles. Now, one of those principles is instituted uh, after the fall of man. Mankind, through his sin, plunges the world into chaos. Uh, guys, we've got a little ring. If you want to turn me off in the monitors, I'm fine without, and you can just deal without there. Uh, mankind plunges the world into sin, and when he does, um, God institutes a principle for protection. 
And that principle is something that we call uh, modesty. Let me see if we can get this. This is what they're doing to me, see? Let's try this, okay. Oh, it worked. I can't see it here, guys. They said, we can tell you can't see it there. Did that look any better? No. Guys, you're killing me up here. Let's try it one last time. If you're watching on the web, this has got to be amazing. Oh, wow. Now, before I could see it on here, that was much easier, I got to tell you. All right. Okay, good. Everybody say modesty. So God institutes the principle of modesty, and when he does, that's for protection. Modesty is not to lock you into the styles of a previous generation. Modesty is not to make it so that you can't be attractive. Modesty is for protection. But the principle of modesty, which is basically that certain areas of the body need to be covered, that's modesty. God institutes that principle after the fall of man. There is another principle equally powerful that God instituted before the fall of man. So this principle is older than the principle of modesty, and it is the principle of distinction. Before there was ever sin in the world, before the devil ever made his play for human beings, God instituted the principle of distinction. Male and female created he them. And so those two principles guide everything that we try to do. Those two principles guide everything uh, that, that we are. They guide every way that we teach about all of these issues. And, and so um, you've got to understand those things from the Word of God. When Paul writes to Timothy, his young protege, and he begins to, to talk about these things, notice what he does. Because a lot of people miss this. They don't get this. That, that Paul isn't giving the same principle uh, to men and to women. He says, guys, I need you to do this. And then he says, in like manner also, I want women to do this. And, and so all of those principles are so very, very important to us. Um, basically, Paul says, guys, here's what I want from you. I want men everywhere, to pray everywhere, and to lift up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. And, and so when God uh, gives that instruction through the Apostle Paul, he identifies three areas for men. Let me see if I can do this here. He, he identifies, first of all, when he says, I, I want you men to lift up holy hands. He's dealing with what I like to call the principle of appetite. The principle of appetite. Because appetite is the lusts of the flesh that can go out of control in a man. Um, men seem to struggle with this more than ladies do. One of the tragedies of our culture right now is they're trying to blend the sexes, which is uh, disobeying God's principle of distinction. We love everybody. We welcome everybody. 
You can't have a lifestyle or an issue. You can't have a problem or a hang-up. You can't have any of that junk that, that, that we wouldn't love you despite all of that. This church loves people no matter how messed up they are. But, but here's the thing. When people get that messed up and when a culture gets that messed up, it begins to spiral out of control and men start to develop women's problems and women start to develop men's problems. I'm very aware as a pastor that for the first time in a long, long time, we're dealing with a lot of ladies who are starting to struggle with online pornography because culture has become so sensualized and sexualized that they're even starting to deal with that. But even still, despite the blending of the sexes, here's what we find. Almost entirely, almost a majority, when men struggle online, they struggle visually. And when women struggle online, they struggle relationally. You ladies, you don't understand what you're playing with when you're on Facebook hooking up with everybody you went to college with and you went to high school with and some of your old flames. You don't understand what you're playing with. You're in dangerous territory. Men, when you're online and you're looking at websites, and Tim Gaddy calls it carnal curiosity. You keep clicking on those links, one after another after another. And you didn't set out to go there, and you didn't start out to go there, but you can get there really fast today. And you get in dangerous territory. Now, here's, here's the deal. Paul said, men, I need you to be able to pray everywhere, not just at church on Sunday. I need you to be able, as an apostolic man, anywhere God calls on you, anywhere there's a need, I need you to be able to lift up holy hands. I need you to be able to pray everywhere. So guys, Christianity is not about cleaning up your mind at prayer meeting on Saturday night so you can feel okay on church, at church on Sunday morning. Christianity is about being on call for God all the time. And Paul knew this, and so he instructs Timothy, who is a young man. He said, Timothy, here's what you've got to teach the men in your church. You've got to teach them that they should be ready to pray everywhere and lift up holy hands. And guys, you cannot lift up holy hands if those hands were clicking on a mouse last night night looking at all kinds of stuff that you shouldn't now how's that for just head-on collision right first thing but do you know what guys if we don't ever get that we don't ever get holiness uh, you, you can't sometimes I, I've done this holiness thing and 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 guys it's like okay good I get to check out they're talking about holiness he's gonna talk to the ladies about how they dress you idiot I wasn't in the pulpit when I said that. My wife tells me not to say that in the pulpit. I always step to the side. Uh, here, here's the thing. You don't know what you're playing with. That is not the way an apostolic man is supposed to live that he's kind of camouflaged. He looks like apostolic. He worships kind of like apostolic. But he's hiding all of this stuff. Guys, we are the leaders and the priests of our homes and God has us on call 24-7. So here's how it needs to work. I would that men pray everywhere. So when there's a situation, an apostolic man can launch into prayer because he doesn't have to launch into an hour of repentance. You know, can I just be honest? There's a lot of guys that come to church 
and, and they are so condemned because of the way they're living that they are like a pew potato. They, they can't do anything. They can't function properly because they're feeling so condemned all the time in their spirit. Guys, if there's ever a generation that needs to break that, it's this generation. There are more traps out there than ever before. But that's why the church stands out like this bright light in the middle of darkness. I'd like to ask every apostolic man full of the Holy Ghost to just lift up your hands and just because you can, I'd like you to go into worship right now and just pray everywhere. If we can't pray in here, we sure can't pray everywhere. When you pray, you're the priest of your home. When you pray, you're the leader of your family. When you pray, you're an example to your church. When you begin to pray, something shifts in the supernatural because of who you are and what God's called you to be. Now, ladies, I want you to join us for a second. Please don't stop, guys. Ladies, I want you to lift up those beautiful, powerful, feminine voices because you're not less than and you're not inferior. God has an equal role for you in the apostolic church. And when we do that, it's incredible. Huh. My goodness. Thank you, Jesus. Holiness grows from the inside out, so we need this if we're going to be a holy people. We have to have this if we're going to be a holy people. Yes, 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 yes. And the devil is terrified of what just happened in this room. Do you realize Jesus looked at his disciples one time and he said, the enemy has nothing in me. Jesus was sinless. You know what we're in need of? We're in need of a generation of apostolic men, young and old and everybody in between that says the devil has nothing on me. He's I'm not hiding a bunch of sin. I'm not hiding a bunch of condemnation. I'm not hiding a bunch of all kinds of activity that's not biblical. I'm free of all of that. And when I walk into the house of God, I can lift up holy hands. So, so that's problem area number one. Paul says, Timothy, tell your guys. They need to deal with the appetites of the flesh because they can get so ensnared in the culture that, that they can get so ensnared in sin that they can't lift up holy hands. So, so Timothy, tell the guys to deal with the appetites of the flesh because an appetite gone out of control becomes a lust and a lust is sin and sin just shuts down everything God's doing in your life. He said, then, uh, Timothy, uh, I, let's go back to uh, verse uh, 8, guys. Um, lifting up holy hands. Everybody say, without wrath. So, so the second thing that Paul is telling Timothy, uh, he said, I want you to tell the guys to deal with anger. You've got to tell them to deal with anger. Because men and ladies are different by creation and by design. And so, Timothy, uh, tell your guys that it's a holiness issue for men how they deal with anger. 
Um, ladies are amazing. They have a thousand emotions. They, they can be happy and joyful, and those are different. They can be cheerful. They can be giddy. They can be all kinds of emotions. And guys don't do that. Guys are very simple. Take that whatever way you want, ladies. <laughs> guys, basically, they're either happy or they're um, kind of mad about something. Either all's good in the world or somebody's going to die. <laughs> it's just we're wired different. <laughs> we're, we're doing a, a marriage series by video at our church right now on Wednesdays. And it's a great, great deal. And, uh, and the guy's he's, he's great. And he was talking about how men and women communicate differently. Like when a woman says, five minutes. When a guy says five minutes, he means... Five minutes. When a woman says five minutes, that means it's an indeterminate amount of time, and you just have to find out how long it's going to be after it's over. Um, if you ask a man what's wrong, he says nothing. He means nothing. If you ask a woman what's wrong, and she says nothing, that means run. <laughs> Get out of there now. If a guy sighs and just goes, that means all is good in his world. If a woman goes, oh my goodness, look out, World War III. So, so basically, we're different by creation. And guys have this deal in them that either all's good, but guys, you have to watch your anger Paul said to Timothy, that's a holiness issue for men. Do you realize that the prisons in the United States of America are full of men who only had one problem? You say, well, no, they have a drug problem, they have a sex problem, they have a criminal problem. They... No, they have an anger problem. They're mad at women. They're mad at their life. They're mad that they don't have what they think they should have. They're mad that somebody else has it, so they took it from them or they robbed them or... They killed them trying to get it, or they got angry at somebody. Your prisons are full of angry men. Look at the prison population just in the United States of America, and look at the number of men in prison, and look at the number of women in prison. Look at the issues that the men have who are in prison, and the issues that the ladies have in prison, and you'll figure out pretty fast that anger is a major issue for men. And Paul said, Timothy, before we talk to the ladies about what they should do, we need to talk to our apostolic men about going to work and something bugs them and they come home with a truckload of anger and they take it out on the people that they say they love the most. When I deal with marriage counseling as a pastor, the women can have all kinds of issues, all kinds of issues. But if there's a relationship issue between the husband and the wife, I'm not talking about an affair or whatever because those become all kinds of weird issues. I'm talking about just between them trying to work it out. Almost always, his issue is that he's angry. He feels like she's not meeting his needs or he doesn't like the way they live or he doesn't like something about their life together. And she may be sad. She may be lonely. She may have a thousand emotions, but he's just mad at life. 
and almost invariably he takes it out on her or on his children. Men, I'm sorry to hit you right across the, the head first thing. But Paul said, you've got to deal with the appetites of your flesh and you've got to deal with this thing called anger. Let me speak very plainly and very bluntly. I don't care how much you dance and how much you shout and how much you smile and how many hands you shake and I don't care if you're pastor's best friend and I don't care if you occupy 20 positions in your church. If you go home and you unload as an angry man on your precious family, you are not living a holy life. I don't care how much you say you are. Anger is not holy. You say, but Paul said, be ye angry. Yeah, there's another half to that verse, Einstein. Some people, that's their life verse, be ye angry. They've got it up on their fridge. He said, be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. So guys, I know there's things in life that make you mad. And there should be. If somebody tries to hurt your family, you should get mad. You're not much of a man if you don't get upset when somebody kind of tries to mess up your kids or mess with your family or mess with your home. You, you, you wouldn't be a man. So it's okay. There is a righteous anger. But here's righteous anger. Be angry and sin not. And listen, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. You know what God's saying to us there? He said, you keep your list short. And, and you cannot destroy a marriage if both of those people will forgive each other, and they'll live according to the Bible. Uh, you, you can't do it. You say, well, I know these Christians. One of them wasn't acting like a Christian, at least one of them, maybe both of them. Because two Christians living according to the Bible, you know what the Bible tells us? is to love one another. And so if they're really loving one another, there won't be abuse in that marriage. And here's what else the Bible tells us, because how many of you who are married are married to a human being? Good, I'm glad, because you never know what your Supreme Court's going to pass next. I'm glad you're married to a human being. That was a cheap shot from a Canadian. But, but, but here's the deal. If you're married to a human being, you're going to have some practice forgiving them from time to time. Because if they're a human being, they're going to make mistakes. And couples don't fall out of love. I don't care how many pathetic Hollywood movies you watch and you think that that's what happens in normal life. I don't care. I don't care how many people you've heard make excuses for why they walked out on their marriage or their wife or husband or home. You listen to me. Couples do not fall out of love. They fall out of forgiveness. And when they fall out of forgiveness, it feels like they've fallen out of love. This is a holiness seminar, Pastor Raymond. You're not supposed to be digging like this. Well, let me tell you something. This is holiness, especially for men. And men, the greatest thing you could do for your wife and your kids is go home and say, I don't care what the issues have been. I don't care what the issues are. Wrap your arms around that spouse that the Lord gave you and say, tonight we draw a line in the sand and we're never going to reach back across that line and drag up all this stuff. Because a man with a memory is a dangerous thing in a marriage. He can bring up stuff that got said a thousand years ago and, and use it as though he's been wounded. Stand up and be a man and realize that if anybody's going to lead the way in love and forgiveness, it's supposed to be you, sir, in your home.
aren't you going to talk to the ladies? Not yet, sir. Hang on. <laughs> One more. Paul said, Timothy, tell your guys in your church that you're building. Tell them to lift up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. And, and let me just give you this, this one more. Um, apathy. Everybody say apathy. Apathy. Apathy means, I don't care. Apathy means, I'm just kind of cynical about it. Apathy means I'm disconnected. Apathy lets you sit in a great apostolic church and never plug in spiritually because you're too protective of your little male ego and you don't want anybody to see you cry. And I don't get emotional like that and I don't whatever. See, I've been a pastor for way too many decades to not know how that affects a family. I know young men and young ladies that have grown up with a detached father who's there. You can't say he's an absentee dad because he's there, but he never goes to the altar never prays and he never worships and they've never seen him shed a tear and they've never seen him raise a hand and they see him sit with his arms folded in church and if that's your posture right now I didn't see you and I'm not picking you on you leave your arms alone it's fine but I'm just talking about as a as a rule they just see this disconnected blob of humanity that is supposed to be the priest and the leader of their home Guys, it's high time to erase from apostolic history the idea that your wife should have to function as the spiritual leadership of your home and drag you to church and drag you to prayer meeting and, and talk to you about all the issues because you never bring them up and you never try to deal with them. We need to erase that from apostolic history so it's just like a distant bad dream. It is time for a generation of men to say, I do care. I care about God, I care about my church, I care about my wife, I care about my home, I care about my kids. It's time to see dads in the altar with their arms wrapped around their kids, praying and interceding, and not just mom praying when they backslide and they come back. It's time to see dads step into their role. You say, well, that wouldn't be very manly. That is the most manly thing you could ever do for your family and your future and your church. You going to talk about the ladies? Not yet. Paul said, Timothy, you please tell the men that they are on call. I would that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Guys, get rid of your anger. And while you're at it, get rid of your little cynicism. Get rid of, get rid of your little apathetic, I don't care, I'm disconnected. When you see that in a young man, we always say, oh my goodness, that's a kid headed for disaster. When you see that in a, a teenage boy or a young 20-something and he just stops caring about church and stops caring about God and stops caring about morality and stops caring about his relationships with, with girls, you, you say, oh my goodness, there's a kid headed for trouble. Well, you know what? That works the very same if you're 52 or 64 or 38 or 45. Men, that's one of our areas. And here's what Paul said. Before you ever talk to the ladies about how they should appear holy and how they should adorn themselves holy and how they should apparel themselves in a holy manner, men, stand up and let's deal with you first. I would that men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. 
You say, well, what's that all about? Well, here, here's what it's all about. Um, it, it's all about this, that, that men and women were created differently. From the very beginning of creation, men and women were created differently. Ladies, you've noticed this, even if the guys haven't noticed this. How many of you women in here, you've noticed that the Word of God gives more commandments about the appearance of women than it does about the appearance of men? Have any of you ladies noticed that there seem to be more commands about you looking holy than there are for men? Anybody notice that? You can raise your hand. It's okay, ladies. Well, that's because we were created differently. We're created male and female. We're created with different temptation areas. We're created with different challenges. And, and so that's not an accident in the Word of God. Every once in a while, a guy named John Gray or somebody else will come by and, and they'll write this book that sells a gazillion copies and they'll make millions of dollars. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And all they've said is common sense. Men are different than women. And I don't care what the courts decide and I don't care what our schools teach, and I don't care what the media portrays, God instituted this principle of distinction between the sexes before there was ever a devil, before there was ever temptation, before there was ever sin in the world. So the principle of distinction between the sexes is even older than the principle of modesty that we teach. And, and we've got to be on guard that that doesn't start to creep into the church. And so because we are male and female, we're created and we have different challenges. God created us differently. Uh, men are created in such a way that, that their temptation areas in holiness are mostly inward areas. Look at what Paul says. Get, in, get the lusts of the flesh, your appetite, so you can lift up holy hands. Get that in check, guys. Get your anger in check. Get your apathy, your cynicism, your doubting. Get that in check. And, and he's talking about inward areas. And then to the ladies, he says, in like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. And he begins to talk to them. And he talks to them about things that are very evident outwardly. And so, ladies, here, here's basically what we're looking at. Men in Scripture are generally commanded to act holy. Act holy. And, and all the time, Scripture's saying to the guys, guys, sharpen up, shape up, act holy. But that same Bible tells ladies, you need to appear holy. Over and over. It talks to the ladies about how they appear. And, and so, why does God do that? Well, well, here's why. When men act holy, women are less likely to be tempted to sin. And when women appear holy, men are less likely to be tempted to sin. And for any of you ladies that are thinking, well, great, that's fair. God gives me all these rules about how I appear, but he doesn't give those rules to the men. He gives the men some rules, some very strong admonition about their action. So before I move on, I want to say one last thing to the guys. Our ladies, and you've noticed this if you're part of this church or another church that's here and they teach these things, you've noticed that our ladies stand out in their appearance in an immodest society. How many have noticed that? Okay. Well, that's by God's design. And ladies, thank you. 
it is not always easy to find modest apparel anymore in the stores that you have to shop in. And thank you for making the effort and taking the time and spending the money and, and going through the headache of doing that because it's not always easy anymore. But a modest, godly woman she shapes her family. She shapes her church. She even impacts her community because she staves off and holds off the tide of immorality and sensuality. But guys, before we put that burden only on the ladies, apostolic men are to act as distinctly in our culture as our women appear in our culture. Don't you start giving the ladies grief over, well, that lady walked into church and she had something on that wasn't very modest. If you are dealing secretly with the lust of the flesh and you're dealing with all kinds of junk and you're hiding and you're camouflaged and you think you're undercover, God doesn't think you're undercover because he wants you to act as distinctly as our ladies appear. So if you think that you can be an apostolic man and, and that you can uh, kind of laugh at all the same stuff and do all the same stuff and be entertained by all the same stuff and hang out at the same places as all the guys at work, if nobody at work knows you're a Christian, if nobody at work knows you're a church member, if nobody at work knows you're an apostolic man, you're doing this wrong. You say, well, I'm just being undercover. <laughs> Thanks. That's really helpful. Now, ladies, I want to shift gears, and I want to talk to you for a little bit. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on your issues, and it's not because they're more important than the men's issues or because you're not doing as good a job as the men or anything like that. We're going to spend some time on your issues because here's the thing. Although many men struggle in those areas, no pastor in America, except, you know, some weirdos, no pastor in America of any denomination is standing up to the guys and saying, hey, go ahead, knock yourself out, be lustful, be angry, be cynical. No pastor in America is doing that. But there's a lot of pastors in America that are saying, well, what the ladies do and how they appear doesn't matter. So they're taking the other side of the coin and they're saying, ladies, it doesn't matter how you appear. When the word of God says it matters very much how you appear. So we're doing this, and if you weren't here last night, I want to just review this for a second. We're doing this for a couple of reasons. One is you need to know what you believe because the answer, well, this is what my church makes me do. Oh, go away. Your church doesn't make you do anything, but your church will teach you the word of God. And, and so that's not a good answer. Well, this is what my church teaches or this is what my pastor expects or I go to that church because I like the worship and I just have to live this way. No, that's not right. We do it because it's in the word of God. So you need to know why you believe. You also need to know why you believe it because people do have questions about it and, and you need to have a good answer for them. So that's why we're going to talk about some of these issues. They've been so maligned and so misunderstood. And Pentecostal people that believed this for years have walked away from this. Um, I first started studying some of this stuff about 20 years ago. I'm really old. I just look young. Uh, about 20 years ago, there was a situation in our district at home. And many churches and pastors were affected. And a pastor that I assisted for the best part of a decade, he walked away from all of this stuff. 
And uh, if you've been around Pentecost a while, you would recognize this phrase. Anybody ever heard the word standards? Yeah. He started using that almost like a curse word. And I heard him say, well, all I'm doing is I'm going to drop these stupid standards. And we're going to reach hundreds of people. And we're going to build this incredible church. Hmm. That's been almost 20 years ago. Every once in a while from the church he pastors, people will come over to our church. Especially some of the younger ones because there's still some kind of hunger in their parents. And although they don't ever see anybody speak in tongues or worship exuberantly or whatever, they remember what it was like. And so they'll send sometimes groups of their young people over to some of our special meetings. I just got to tell you, as a pastor, it's terrifying to watch those kids in our services. They don't have a clue how to respond to the moving of the Spirit of God. They've never seen it. In one service we were in, a young lady, she almost jumped out of her skin, and she said to a, one of our girls, she said to Tammy, she said, what is that? And Tammy said, what do you mean? She said, that. And Tammy turned around and said, that's somebody speaking in tongues. You've never seen that? No. She goes to a Pentecostal church in our city. When you throw out what God commands us as far as lifestyle, what you've just done is you've started unraveling something that you don't have any idea how much thread you're going to pull out of it before you're finished. And so 20 years ago, when that began to happen, with a pastor that I had worked for for almost a decade. I didn't go to my friends and I didn't go to my denomination and I didn't go to whoever. I went to the Word of God and I got on my knees and at my desk and I got in the Word and I had just one motive. I wanted to know if this stuff was in the Bible or not because I love this church. I love Brother Dean. I don't much care what P.O.B.C. or any other church teaches. I don't care what C.C.C. teaches in Frederick and where I pastor. I do care what the Word of God says. And if it's in the Word of God, I want to do it. And if it's not in the Word of God, I want to deal with it. And so I, I, I went to the Word of God, and the more I studied this stuff, the stronger it got in my spirit. So I, I want to take one more look again at... Uh, what Paul's writing here. Would you go with me uh, back to verse 9? In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but that they adorn themselves in a different way. Notice what Paul says. He says, ladies, here's some areas for you to consider, and they're all appearance areas. He said, uh, first of all, uh, you need to adorn yourselves. Everyone say adorn. So ladies, the way you decorate yourself, it's not wrong to look pretty or look nice, but the way you decorate yourself needs to be moderated by Scripture because that's a temptation area for you. And then he said, you need to be careful, ladies, of your apparel. Your apparel needs to be modest. Because the way your culture would teach you to clothe yourself is going to be such a pressure against you to disobey the principles of the Word of God. So that's another area. And then he says something that is, is kind of neat. He says, um, he says uh, you need to do this with shamefacedness and sobriety. And, and that speaks of an attitude. You say, well, attitude is inward. 
No, attitude can be projected outward. That's why some of your friends that you hang out with, you can feel them coming before they walk in the door. Because they got a bad attitude. It's like, uh-oh, she's coming. And the way a lady projects her acceptance of her God-given role in the kingdom is through something that she does with her hair and it expresses her attitude of submission. So we're going to talk about those areas, but I just want to talk about one of them tonight and we're going to finish up tomorrow night. And this first area of adornment is really important, especially today, uh, because styles and adorning are getting so outlandish. Um, the word adorn means simply to beautify or decorate with ornaments. And God is not fond of ugly. You don't have to be ugly to please God. In fact, if you've got a frown on your face, uh, you're probably not being a great witness for the kingdom of God. Uh, so God doesn't mind pretty things. Ladies, he wants you to look attractive. But attractive and sensual are two different things. Attractive and immodest are two different things. Attractive and overtly sexual in your appearance. They're two different things. And so God says, I want you to adorn yourself properly, ladies. So I'm not coming against anybody. I'm not coming down on anybody. I'm just going to tell you why we do what we do and why you've observed what you've observed in churches like this one. See, the, the Greek word for adorning is cosmio. And cosmio is the same root from which we get the, uh, the word cosmetics. It means to beautify. And so the cosmos, God adorned it with stars. He sprinkled the stars in the heavens. And, and so God's not against adorning. He's not against beauty. He loves beauty. He created beauty. And ladies, he created your beauty. And it offends me that men think they don't need any help in this area and ladies, by the lie of culture, that you've got to buy products to make yourself presentable. And here's your husband. He's just living life, <laughs> living large. And here you think you've got to go through this self. I, I, I've heard ladies in the world say, well, I can't even go out to take out the trash until I put on my face. What kind of bondage is that? My goodness. Brother John Minns, a precious elder in our area in eastern Canada, for many years he was the superintendent of the Nova Scotia District of Churches. John and Nyla Minn. Nyla Minn used to be a lady evangelist, and she preached down here. In fact, she was preaching the night that T.F. Tenney received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Great lady evangelist. Uh, she and Brother John Minn, they ended up getting married, and they went to Nova Scotia. And they started, or helped start, every single church in the province of Nova Scotia. Amazing people. Uh, Brother Min's elderly now. Sister Min's gone on to glory. Brother Min's a precious guy. I think about six times in his later years, he mortgaged his house and put the money into starting churches in Nova Scotia. We have two young men, uh, Justin and Dan. Uh, they went with their wives to start a church in Nova Scotia, and Brother Min has helped them with that church, and he's now up in his 80s. Precious man of God. In Canada, we have um, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC. 
all the news that's not news at all. Um, they're just amazing. Um, I actually saw a headline on the CBC. This is not a lie. I'm not making this up. This was this week. I saw a headline on the CBC website that said, uh, woman upset that someone mowed her lawn without asking permission. That was a headline. Um, forget ISIS. Forget, like, just forget it. This woman's upset that somebody mowed her lawn and didn't ask her first. So CBC is not highly respected as a great organ of Canadian journalism, but this little reporter lady was doing a series on these weird Pentecostals. This has been years ago. And she was interviewing different people, and I don't know how she got John Min's address or number or whatever, but she stuffs a microphone up under his nose, and she gets on him about all this. Your ladies, they don't wear any jewelry. And your ladies, they don't wear makeup. And your ladies... He looked back at her as only an elder could do. He patted her on her hand. He looked at that reporter and he said, oh, my dear. He said, we paint dead things like barns and fences and houses. We would never paint a pretty little thing like you. <laughs> Interview was over. So ladies, before we kind of launch into this, can I just say, I agree with the elder. I think the way God made you is just perfect, just the way he made you. My wife has, she's a prayer warrior. Beverly prays for me every single day of my life, multiple times. Hardly ever talk to her on the phone that she doesn't say, I was just praying for you. Doesn't matter what time of day I talk to her. She's probably praying for me right now. I call her prayer traffic control because she doesn't like to fly. And when, we, when I fly, she prays for me all the time. She doesn't just pray for me. She prays for the pilots. She prays for the planes. She prays for the airport. She prays for the weather. She's amazing. Um, I was telling them last night, when I fly with her, which is very rare, but when I can talk her on, into getting on a plane and I fly with her, I don't pray for any of that because she's got that all covered. I pray for the guy in the seat in front of her because when there's turbulence, she grabs his seat and goes, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I pray for him that he doesn't have a nervous breakdown or a heart attack. She's awesome. Beverly and I are in our 50s. Um... Beverly's born two children, precious kids that have grown up now, and they're married. Got one precious little granddaughter. Another one on the way in January. We love our life. We love our family. I love her. She loves me. I can't understand that last one, but she does. And uh, Beverly's a beautiful lady. She's got... A little bit of gray coming in her hair now you would too if you live with me I think that's beautiful Beverly doesn't feel the pressure to look like somebody on the front of a magazine guys I'm sorry to jump back at you because she doesn't have a husband who's looking at all those magazines all the time and she sees him looking at them all the time 
She doesn't have a husband who, when he's walking with her in an airport, turns around and goes like this. And so I pray to God that I can always let her know how beautiful she is. Because ladies, you're beautiful in every stage and every age of life. Would you stop buying the lie that you've got to be forever 21? What a lie that is. Who wants to be forever 21? I'm sorry. I know I'm kind of plodding here. I apologize. Your brain's not even fully functional until you're 25. Do you know this? So if you want to be forever 21, that's like saying, I'd like to be forever stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm meddling now. So ladies adorning, God loves it when you feel pretty. But God hates it when you think you're only pretty if you look like what culture tells you you have to look like to be pretty. Because God didn't create junk when he created you. I'm stuck, Brother Dean. There's a spirit in this age that wants to take over apostolic churches and let us keep doing our praise and worship and let us keep doing our preaching and let us keep doing our baptizing, but make us all feel like we're some kind of inferior, weird subculture of American culture, that is garbage. The greatest things in your nation and the greatest things in your culture came about as a result of people who wanted religious liberty and they came to this nation and they set up a nation that was one nation under God. I know they weren't apostolic, but they at least believed in the Bible and they at least wanted to try to honor God in the founding of this great nation. And where you have stayed with that, your nation has been the beacon of hope to this world. And where you have started to stray, your friends grieve, and I know you do. If there ever was a generation where apostolic people just need to stand up and say, you know what, if this lobby and if this lifestyle and if this group and if this political action group and if that group over there, if they can all stand up and scream and yell about what they want and how they are and how they live, then my goodness, isn't it time that apostolic people without arrogance and without some kind of superiority, isn't it time that we stood up and said, I'm apostolic, this is how I live, this is how I dress, this is how I worship. What in the world would be wrong with that with an apostolic man saying, I'm an apostolic man, I don't mess with pornography. I'm an apostolic man, I love my wife. I'm an apostolic man, I hug my kids. I'm an apostolic man, I pray. I'm an apostolic lady. I don't feel pressure when I go to the mall to buy all kinds of stuff to make somebody look at me to make me feel pretty. God created me the way I am and I feel fine just the way I am. Thank you very much. Now, when you talk about this thing called adornment, um, People have differences of opinion, I, I know that, and some people get into extremes. Some people believe that you shouldn't have any adornment. They do crazy stuff. How many know there's crazy people around church? Well, some of the crazy people on the adornment thing, they, they think you shouldn't wear any kind of uh, jewelry at all. Not a watch, 
not a wedding ring, not a, uh, a brooch, not a hair clip, just none, period, none. In fact, they can get into some really weird stuff. Um, one guy actually walked up to another guy. This is supposed to have happened in New Brunswick years ago at a little uh, convention in the country. He walked up to another guy and he said, I see you wear deodorant. <laughs> the other brother had a great answer. He went, I see you don't wear deodorant. <laughs> but he had actually developed a position, he, he, that was his conviction, that that's adorning to wear deodorant. That is not adorning. That's just good common sense and pity on everybody that, that sits around you in church. If you have that conviction, if you'd please move to the lobby right now, that'd be awesome. So, so, so that's an extreme position. Some people talk about, you know, you can't uh, do any kind of, of uh, face care products and you can't do anything. And, and, and uh, you, you to, they're, they're in some kind of weird idea where they're almost trying to make us in, in some kind of weird bondage. Ladies, that's an extreme position. That's not what your church teaches. But here's the problem. People see that and they say, well, my goodness, we don't want to be extremists. And then they go to the exact opposite extreme. That's extreme too. Where we dress and we adorn ourselves exactly like the world. And somebody lifts up their hand on a Sunday morning and it's like blinding. Oh my goodness. Like they got enough gold on that hand. They could fund the whole state of Louisiana. Just one hand. That's extreme too. So here's what your pastors do. And they have a difficult job. You need to pray for them and you need to honor them. Because your pastors say, we're going to get in the word of God and we're going to have a balanced position. And so basically, this is what we've come to over the years in the apostolic movement. I'm not talking about the pseudo-apostolic movement. I'm talking about the real apostolic movement. Here's where we are. We believe that if jewelry serves a function, like a wristwatch or a hair clip or whatever, um, and a wedding band, the early church allowed the token of the wedding token, so most of our pastors don't have an issue with that. And, and so we've come to that understanding that if it serves a function... We allow it. But if it's just to decorate your body and call attention to you, your pastor teaches that you shouldn't do that. Because why are you doing that in the first place? Well, everybody wears this. Not a good example. Look at your culture. Everybody does a lot of stuff that you shouldn't be doing. And so that's not a good example. And, and so here's what I would say about all of these issues that we'll talk about. If your pastor is here, and your pastor differs from me, then you need to submit to your pastor because he's your man of God. And if he teaches something that's a higher standard than what I teach, you need to obey your man of God and you need to submit to him. And if he has a difference with me, you need to submit to him. He's right, I'm wrong. Because there are areas here that we have to follow the leading of the Holy Ghost. We have the principles. Now, if you look at the principles of the Word of God, it's, it's pretty obvious that early on in Scripture, jewelry was actually a blessing from God. Some of you, you, you think, well, wow, I heard what I need to hear. I'm going to, going to the mall. <laughs> jewelry was originally a blessing from God, but not for the reason you think. When Israel came out of Egypt on the last night of their slavery... God let them spoil the Egyptians and they took the jewels, the gold and the silver and the precious jewels of the Egyptians 
Do you understand what God did on the last night of the captivity of Israel in Egypt? They'd been slaves for 430 years, and in one night he gave them back pay for 430 years. So would you stop thinking God can't bring you out and do a miracle? If he can make up 430 years in one night, he can, do, he can handle yours. So God gives them this jewelry of the Egyptians. It's a blessing from God, but not for the reason you think. He's not giving them jewelry so they can, you know, hang it on themselves. He's given them jewelry because it was the barter system in the Old Testament. They didn't have U.S. dollars. And so he's given them currency to barter and trade because they're going to be taking a long journey to the promised land, and he gives them the wealth of the Egyptians. If you follow the story in the Bible, you'll find out that they soon get into trouble with this. It's, it's unreal. The first time is in Genesis chapter 35. In Genesis 35, Jacob is leading his family in repentance because they got away from God a little bit. And he's leading them in repentance and God tells them, I want you to remove their, your ornaments, your idols and your jewelry. And, and so Jacob tells his family that. God's beginning to tell his people, you know what, I gave you that, but I don't want you to wear that on your body. That's to honor me and that's to bless you, but it's not to wear. And so Jacob actually buries the idols and he buries the jewelry of his family under a tree and then they go on with their journey. That's the first time. One of the incredible passages about this in the word of God is in Exodus chapter 32 and 33. Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, receiving the commandments, and down in the valley below, they are melting down all the jewels that they brought from Egypt, and they're making a golden calf, and they're dancing around it and saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Yeah, baloney. And God's not very happy, so he and Moses have this conversation. You know the story. Moses comes down the mountain, and he smashes the Ten Commandments, and God says, go back up and make another set, and so he goes back up the mountain. And Moses and God have this conversation. This is an amazing conversation. You need to read this sometime. Moses is a brave man. He and God face off. And God says, Moses, I am so mad at these rebellious people. They keep taking the blessing I gave them and they keep using it on their bodies and they're trying to be sensual like the Egyptian culture. And I'm so mad at them, Moses, I feel like wiping them out. And Moses said, God, you can't wipe them out. What will people think? He's a brave man. He's talking with the Almighty. What do people think of you, God? God says to Moses, he said, okay, I promised that I would get my people to the promised land, but I'm not going with you because if I am among these people by my presence and they do this again with this jewelry thing, I'll wipe them out. I'll send my angel and I'll send my angel and my angel will protect you. My angel will take you to the promised land and you'll be okay. I'll send my angel. And Moses, brave guy, oh my goodness, he says, God, if you're not going with us, we're not moving one step. If you read the passage in your Bible, it's one of the few places you see this in the King James Version. There's this long dash. There's dashes in the Word of God, but this is a long dash. You know what that dash is? It's Moses standing there going. He and God face off. And finally, God says, okay, Moses, I'll go with you. But I want my people to show their repentance by removing their ornaments. Because I don't like it when my people take 
the blessing that I gave them and they just use it to decorate their body. So I want you to tell my people to remove their ornaments. And the Bible tells us that they removed their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward and they never took them back again. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, we don't have time tonight. You can go through the prophet Isaiah. You can go through the book of Deuteronomy. You can go through the book of Judges. There's a passage in Judges that says they all had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And the implication is the Israelites didn't wear that. You can read through the prophet Ezekiel where Israel is portrayed as a, you know, basically she's turned into a harlot and she's taken all the blessings God gave her. And she's using her blessings to flaunt her sensuality before the people. And then you can go to this one lady that you may have heard of in the Old Testament. Her name is Jezebel. Anybody ever heard of Sister Jezebel? <laughs> Jezebel is not just a queen of the kingdom in the Old Testament. Jezebel is what we call in Scripture a representative person. Joseph was a representative person. He represents Jesus. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold for silver, and he came back. There's such an amazing thing. Stephen tells this story when he's preaching his sermon in the book of Acts. And he talks about Joseph that the first time you see Joseph, he's betrayed and he's sold for silver and he's going into prison. And the next time you see Joseph, he's been given a new name. The name is Zapanath Panea. If anybody's expecting, you're welcome to use that one. <laughs> Zapanath Panea. The next time Joseph's brothers see him, he's seated on the throne of Egypt and he is Zapanath Panea which means, in the Egyptian tongue, the savior of the world. This isn't about holiness, but it's so good. I just got to stop for a second. The first time you see Jesus, he's betrayed by his people. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He sold for silver. They crucify him and put him in a grave. But the next time we see Jesus... He's going to be seated on a throne and he's going to have a name that's above every other name. And his name is the Savior of the world. So Joseph isn't just a character in the Old Testament. He's a symbol. Jezebel isn't just a character in the Old Testament. She's symbolic of something. In fact, if you trace her character, you'll find her spirit is still alive when her old carcass has disintegrated. Her spirit's still alive, clear into the last book of the Bible in the book of Revelation in chapter 2, verse 20, when the writer John says, uh, on behalf of God, he says to one of the churches, I have a few things against you because you suffer that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication. Her spirit survives the whole Old Testament. Her spirit survives clear into the New Testament. Her spirit survives clear into the book of Revelation. Can I tell you, her spirit has survived even until today. And there's a spirit of Jezebel that wants to make a, a, a seductive pass at the church and say, you can have the power of God, but you can also look like the world. You can have the power of God, but you just can have the styles of the world too. And you can blend the two. That was Jezebel's thing. Jezebel's spirit is still very much alive today. But if you watch it, here's what you'll see. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, you will see only two women left standing there's the harlot church who's drunk on the blood of the martyrs and she's clothed in 
fine purple and scarlet and she's decked out with jewels and you'll see her the harlot church and you'll see the bride of Christ she's the only other woman left standing at the end of the prophecy of John and she's clothed in pure white fine linen which is the righteousness of the saints you got to choose which church you're going to belong to because there's only two churches in the end time. There's not a hundred, there's not 50, there's just two churches. And you got to choose. You say, is God that serious about that kind of stuff? Oh, you want to believe he's serious. See, you may have a complex about being a separate people, but God has always called his people to be a separate people. You might have an inferiority complex about being a wholly distinct people, but God has always called his people to shine like a light in the darkness. And one of the ways we do that, far from the only way we do that, but one of the ways we do that is we do not adopt the customs and the patterns and, and all of the adornment of the world. And, and so... Uh, God talks about this. God's not against ladies you wearing perfume or, you know, he's not against that. Somebody, somebody had a conviction against that, you know, that guy that didn't like deodorant. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about the lust of the nose. So knock yourself out, but please don't wear enough to knock the rest of us out, okay? It's fine. But the Bible does talk about the lust of the eyes. So ladies, one of the principles that Paul gives and Paul isn't the only one that gives it. Peter gives it in 1 Peter when he's writing. He gives the same principles for ladies that Paul does. Paul's writing to Gentiles. Peter's writing to Jews. Paul's writing to people uh, as deals with the church. Peter's writing to a lady about how she conducts herself in her home. These standards were universal in the New Testament church. Because what you don't understand, you, see, you've bought the lie maybe that, well, this is just, you know, Back in New Testament times, they didn't have any problem with this. And, and, and everybody kind of dressed the same. Oh, my goodness. Read your history. Forget your Bible. Read your history. The Roman Empire caved in from within because it was so perverse and sensual and ungodliness and immorality was rampant. The church in the first century was just like us. You are not the first people that have ever had to grapple with the fact that God wants you to look distinct in an ungodly, sensual atmosphere. Just just because America was founded on the scripture and back in the 1920s and 30s we didn't have such a problem with ungodliness that wasn't the way it was in ancient Rome there was all kinds of sensuality on public display you say well they didn't have pornography yes they did look at their statues look at their mythology they had all kinds of stuff to deal with. And yet, in the middle of that ungodly, perverse, perverted culture, that's where God planted the first apostolic church. And it grew up and it thrived and people lived a holy, modest, godly life. So, you know, you say, well, it's getting bad out there. Yeah, it's getting just like the first century. That's what it's getting like out there in America and in Canada and around the world. And you are not God's, you know, kind of last choice or last attempt. You are God's end time church. And if God anointed them for the first century to raise up a holy, godly church in an ungodly, sensual world, then don't you think God may have just chosen you to raise up a holy, godly church in the 21st century, ungodly, sensual world? Let me come to a close here. Um, so, so this is just one area, ladies. I want to talk about the other two tomorrow. If, 
if you're a lady here, and guys, you need to be here too, but, but ladies, just as a friend, God's going to do something so powerful tomorrow in our session. You just need to be here. Um, he's going to give some understanding, and, and literally, you may not believe that this could even happen in a, a, a holiness seminar, but God is just going to come in here with revelation, and God's going to come in here with a special anointing for our ladies tomorrow night. Uh, you, you don't understand what he's going to do. It's just going to be amazing. You've you got to be here. Um, so so let, me, let me wind up here. Um, one of your great scholars in this district in Louisiana, Brother Marvin Treese, he, he knew so much about the Greek language, and he, he studied. And, and this is something that I came across from his teaching uh, quite a, a number of years ago, and I thought, oh, my goodness, that's, that's so good. And I went and checked it out, and oh, my goodness, it was just amazing. Peter and Jude both quote quite extensively from a book that's not in the Bible. It's a little book called the Book of Enoch. Um, Brother Treese wasn't campaigning that the Book of Enoch shouldn't have, should have been in the Scripture, and neither am I. But it's just a fact that Peter and Jude believed some of the things, some of the information that was written in the Book of Enoch. And so they quoted from it. Um, so if you, if you go to the book of Jude, uh, it's, it's very prominent in that book that uh, Peter is quoting, or that Jude is quoting from the book of Enoch. Um, here, here's the verses. Let's go to Jude chapter 1. I don't get it. You need to read your Bible more. Jude chapter 1, verse 14. Watch this. Jude says, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Right there, Jude is quoting from the book of Enoch. So obviously, although the book of Enoch isn't in the scripture, Jude considered that to be factual information, or he wouldn't have included it in the anointed holy scripture. If you back up to verse 8, here's another quote from the book of Enoch in the book of Jude, verse 8. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Now in that little book, the book of Enoch, which Jude is quoting from, so Jude obviously considers that it's factual information and God allowed that quote to be in his word. In that verse, Jude is talking, and Enoch is talking, about fallen angels, filthy dreamers, the angels that fell, the angels that rebelled. And he actually says, the, the Greek word, Brother Tree said, when he says defile the flesh, it means the fallen angels taught humanity to paint the flesh. It was fallen angels that taught us to do that. Now here's what is recorded in the book of Enoch. Enoch records that it was the fallen angels when they rebelled against God and they were cast out of heaven that they came to earth and they tried to wreak havoc because the devil doesn't love you no matter how many temptations he puts in front of you that look okay and look fun. The devil hates you. He hates that you got a second chance when he never got a second chance. In fact, some of you, you need to thank God because you got a 25th chance and, and the devil never got a second chance and so he hates you. And so he tries to destroy humanity. And so... I went back and I looked up online, you can do this, I looked up the book of Enoch. 
and I read the book of Enoch. You can do this online. And so I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture, quote, that, that's not Scripture, okay? It's from the book of Enoch, which is not in the Bible. But this is from the book of Enoch. So don't you dare go out and say Woodward taught something that's not in the Bible because Enoch is quoted in Jude, so Jude thinks that this is factual. Enoch chapter 8, it's not in your Bible, don't look it up. Enoch chapter 8, verse 1. The fallen angels taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working them. So here's what Enoch taught and what Jude referred to. The fallen angels hate humanity so much that when they fell and God kicked them out of heaven, they came to earth to try to destroy humanity. And they taught men. Everybody say men. How they tried to get men to destroy other men was they taught men to make weapons. You ever wonder where weapons came from? Well, the Bible says that the fallen angels, weapons appear very early in the Old Testament. Where did they come from? The, the Enoch said, and Jude quotes him, that the fallen angels taught mankind to make weapons because when men make weapons, men destroy other men and the devils can just sit back and watch it all happen. But if I continue to read in the book of Enoch that Jude quotes and Peter quotes from, Enoch said, the fallen angels made known to them bracelets and ornaments and the use of antimony and the beautifying of the eyelids and all kinds of costly stones and all coloring tinctures. The Bible references the book of Enoch, and Enoch records that it was the fallen angels that taught men to make weapons so men would destroy themselves, and the fallen angels taught women to paint their faces so men would destroy themselves. Enoch recorded that as fact, and Jude quotes him and says, these filthy dreamers, they paint the flesh, they defile the flesh. Here's what the book of Enoch says, and there arose much godlessness and they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and they became corrupt in all of their ways. I am not campaigning for the book of Enoch to be added into the scripture. I'm just saying that there's a point there, because Jude quotes from Enoch, and he obviously believes that what Enoch recorded was fact. This whole idea of you needing a false beauty so that people look at you, ladies, and they think you're sensual, I get really disturbed. I'm going to meddle here, Pastor Dean. I apologize. Guys, you need to stop talking about your wife. She's sexy. She's hot. You need to quit that stuff. Yes, she is to you. That's not to be broadcast. See, I told you I was going to meddle. We need to quit that stuff. I've seen preachers do that kind of stuff. I think it's a wonderful thing when a man thinks that his wife is sexy and his wife is hot and his wife is pretty and his wife is gorgeous and his wife is beautiful. And a compliment's one thing, guys. But that belongs between her and her husband. We are not the world. We don't broadcast somebody's sex appeal in the apostolic church. It's not because we're prudes. It's not because we don't appreciate beauty. And it's not because we have these boring marriages. You know who has the, you know who can't keep a marriage together? Hollywood, all your sex appeal people. They can't keep a marriage together as long as I can keep my keys. 
And so the devil, when the fallen angels fell, Enoch records that they taught women to think that they needed to paint their faces to attract the gaze of men. I want to go to our final scripture tonight, and we're going to close, we're going to pray. We started with this one back in when Paul uh, recorded it in Timothy, uh, when he wrote to Timothy. Uh, Paul recorded about the fall of Adam and Eve. And, and he said this, he said that in the transgression, Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. Uh, ladies, sometimes men have tried to lord it over, over you because, you know, well, a woman got us into trouble. If that man had been standing there talking to that snake, only the Lord knows what would have happened. Whatever happened, he would have forgot about it and blamed the woman anyway. But the, the Bible's very specific in that passage. If, if you notice it, um, when, when Paul begins to write, he says, um, this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, and um, verse 14. For Adam was not deceived. Everybody say, not deceived. But the woman being deceived, or you say being deceived, she was in the transgression. So, so it's very clear in Scripture that when sin happened, the woman, she fell first. She was deceived by the serpent. She ate of that fruit, whatever it was, and she plunged herself and all of her descendants into sin. Now what happens next is astounding to me. She comes to Adam with the fruit, and she offers it to him. The Bible says that she was deceived, but the Bible's just as specific to say that Adam was not deceived. When Adam saw his precious, beautiful wife that God had given him, Eve, she comes to him, and he can see in her that there's been a change. The Jewish scholars believe that Adam and Eve were clothed in the glory of God. He can see that sin has entered into her body. Sin has entered into her bloodstream. Something's different about her. He may not understand it theologically, but Adam instantly knows that she's disobeyed God and the Bible's specific. He was not deceived. Eve didn't know what she was doing. She was deceived. She took the fruit and she ate. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Because that was his wife. That was a woman. He was a man. And he loved her. And so he took the fruit from Eve. And he ate the fruit. And Adam joined her in sin. And that's how this whole mess started. God said, oh, we've got to institute the principle of modesty. Because now your nakedness, we're going to talk about that tomorrow night. Now your nakedness is a shame and it's a danger and it's a temptation to you. So we've got to institute this principle of modesty because of sin. But if you go all the way back to the beginning, I told the folks here on Sunday morning, there's nothing in your Bible by accident. There's nothing incidental in your Bible. There's nothing coincidental in your Bible. If you go back to the very first opening story in the Bible, there's a beautiful picture there. How many know that we, the church, we're called the bride of Christ? When humanity willingly went into sin, 
God was wanting a bride. He was wanting a wife. He was wanting a spouse. And when humanity went into sin, God could see us in our fallen state and he knew that we had been deceived. He knew that we had taken of sin and he knew that sin was now coursing through our bloodstream and sin was now uh, wreaking havoc in the lives of Adam and Eve and soon to be their children and on through the ages. And God wasn't caught by surprise. Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. When God saw us in trouble, he willingly partook of humanity. He willingly entered a fallen human race. He willingly came from heaven. And just like Adam joined Eve, God came to us and he redeemed us. And in that opening chapter of the word of God, there's this beautiful picture of a God who loves you so much that although he could exist in heaven forever without you, he chose not to exist in heaven forever without you. He wants you to be in his family and he wants you to be in his heaven. But God loves you so much that he is not going to leave you like the world. He's not going to leave you with all the hidden trash and junk and bondage and addiction and sin. When God gets in you by the power of his spirit, something begins inside of you that turns you around. The theologians talk about righteousness. And righteousness, the original word in the old English, is right-wiseness. That's righteousness, right-wiseness. You know why they said, that, said it that way? Is because when God's righteousness comes in, it turns you right-wise up. You were upside down. You were in sin. You were destroyed. But God turns your life right side up. It is insane to believe that that only happens on the inside and you go right on living in the same old patterns and the same old sin and the same old sickness and the same old sensuality and the same old addiction on the outside. That's a ridiculous proposition. It's not supported anywhere in the word of God. When God comes into your life, he changes you on the inside and that just begins like sin flowed through the bloodline. Righteousness begins to flow through the bloodline of the child of God and they start to make choices not on what, based on what the world says but based on what God's word says. Not based on what culture says they should look like but what God says a vessel containing his Holy Spirit should look like. Ladies, I just want to address you as we close tonight. When, when you are God's holy vessel, it's wrong and it's displeasing to God and it grieves his spirit. If you, a precious child of God, a daughter of the living God, that you're adorning yourself in a way that attracts the lustful, sensual gaze of the world toward you. And so you've already observed it. You've observed that our ladies, they don't, adorn themselves that way. They don't try to make themselves up so that their face looks sensual. Why do they do that? Because it's taught in the word of God. Not because we're trying to feel better than you, holier than thou, arrogant. That's not us. We just want to please Jesus. And we want to give him a vessel that is holy like he is holy. 
ladies, tomorrow we're going to talk about apparel, which is very important. But we're also going to talk about that attitude of submission and acceptance of your God-given role because God didn't call you to be a man. He called you to be a woman. And when a woman says, I'm not trying to be a man. I'm not trying to be admired by my culture. I'm just God's daughter, and I live according to that. There's incredible power that's unleashed in the life of a woman. And it's been teaching. I understand that. But I want you to lift up your hands right now in the manifest presence of God. Just like you were reaching up into the atmosphere to grab something, I want you to reach up, and I want you to lift up your voice with your hands. And this time, I want you ladies to lift up your voice, and I want you to just lead us for a moment. 